So we're turning uh, to God's Word now, and we're, we're continuing on in our Multiply series, and we're going to be uh, reading from the book of Acts again, where we're just walking through Acts and asking, how does this apply to us? What's the relevance of Acts for today? And we're seeing that it's, as re- uh, that it's relevant for us today as it has ever been. So we're reading from Acts chapter 4 today, uh, Acts 4 from verse 8, and then 29 to 31. And it says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. For Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. For salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Moving on to verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, said Peter. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Amen. Gareth. Gary, thank you. Thank you so much for reading for us today. Uh, Let me lift this here forward. Father, we love your words, and we ask this morning, help us to fall more in love with both your words and with you, the God who, who speaks and continues to speak to us. Grant us a a stillness inside. Grant us open minds, discerning minds, so that each person here may sift through what is of me and what is of you, Lord. So speak, God, for this morning your servants truly are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You enjoying church so far? It'd be awkward if you said no, wouldn't it? It's great. Um, at the season in life that I'm at, uh, my, my father, who is now a grandfather, uh, is really discovering a new lease of life and a new lease of joy. Now, part of that comes from retirement and part of that comes from his grandkids and all that there. But, but I actually think, and it's a cynical part of my mind, thinks it, that for my dad... One of his greatest sources of joy presently is watching my kids do to me what 30 years ago I did to him. And he he doesn't say anything, he doesn't brag about it, but he just, you see him sitting in the chair with his hands on his belly, just smiling like a Cheshire cat, shaking his head. You know, I, I find myself walking around the house saying things that from the past feel familiar because I remember my dad saying them and I'm thinking, how does that come out of my mouth? Things like, this place is not a lighthouse. (laughs) And we are not hitting the street for everybody else. Close that door. 
is this familiar for any of you? Yeah. And, and my dad, who just, that was the, the, that was the soundtrack to my childhood and my teenage years in our house, just sitting, <laughs> smiling with deep satisfaction. His favorite one at the minute. As a kid, I questioned everything. Uh, apparently, my, all the time, but daddy. But the, no matter what my dad said, apparently my response was, but daddy. I like to think I was curious and inquisitive. He, he articulates it that I was um, twisted and contrived. But um, we, we made it through anyway. But, but now my youngest daughter has picked up that phrase. And no matter what we ask her to do, but daddy. But the, and my dad's just <laughs> like this. But daddy, but daddy, but daddy. And it's, it's that I want you to see this morning, the, the, the but daddies. Because as we look at this text, there's all kinds of ways to look at this text this morning. But I want you to see the objections that are brought, the, the, the but daddies, the excuses that are brought in the conversation of this text. I, I think there's something really profound for us to see in that. The context for today flows straight out of what Gary was talking about last week. So if you missed his sermon last week, I want to encourage you to go listen to it on YouTube or on podcast. It's a phenomenal preach about Acts chapter 3. And um, what happened there was Peter and John are going into the temple. There's a guy who has a disability and asks for money. And Peter and John go over to him. They see him. They, they pray with him. And um, Jesus' spirit comes through their words and through their ministry and heals this guy. And he, he is physically healed. He is spiritually healed. And he jumps up, starts dancing about. And Peter preaches a sermon. And there's, a, what, several thousand people give their lives to Jesus in the context of, of this story. Because, and Acts chapter 4 then flows out the back of that because what we see is this Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin See, having to give an account of what has happened, having to explain to them what has happened because the Sanhedrin have these but daddy moments. They have these, you know, questions. And questions are good. Providing the heart behind the question is good. It's okay to say but daddy. It's okay to be inquisitive, to to be skeptical, to be curious, to ask questions, if your heart is to go deeper into it and to become more obedient to what God is asking. Not blindly obedient, but spiritually discerning what is truth and then surrendering your own will to it. In those moments, the but daddies are good. But if it comes from a place of skepticism and arrogance and just simply wanting to trip people up, then no, it's not. We see both in the text today. See, the first objection that the Sanhedrin have, or one of the objections, one of the main ones the Sanhedrin have, in verse 13, you can see it. Because they were unschooled and ordinary men. Peter and John were unschooled and ordinary men. You see, the Sanhedrin, literally the word means sitting together, the, the assembly sitting together, the Sanhedrin was made up of the chief priest, the, the, his family, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. It was a, a judicial religious system that was based in every major town, every major Jewish town. 
It, it was the power base. It was the institution. It was the, the, the place that the, the teachers were sanctioned from. They, they, they made decisions. They ruled on religious matters. They were the, the institution. And Peter and John are brought before them because they were teaching as men who were unschooled and didn't have authority. They, they, they didn't have a formal education and they weren't part of the official establishment. They weren't part of the institution. We, we will come on to the objection that the Sanhedrin had to the message that Peter and John had, but first and foremost, I want you to see their objection was to the fact that it was these guys that were doing it. It wasn't coming from the center, officially, formally, it was bubbling up at the grassroots informally. Who are they to think they can do that? This new movement the Sanhedrin felt was a threat to their position. It was a threat to their own authority that they had. It was a threat to the institution of Judaism that had been around for coming up on a thousand years or more. I think it's interesting just recognizing that in the text. On Monday of last week, we watched, or many of us watched, and I hope worshipped along with the Queen's funeral. And if you were watching it online like I was on TV, you were one of about four billion people, they reckon, who watched those two services of worship. Watched as Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, stood up and his opening words, come Holy Spirit, and then proceeded to teach on the resurrection of Jesus. Four billion people around the planet watching that service. The UK standing still to watch and participate in that service. It was incredible moments. That was a Monday. On Tuesday, the University of Ulster released a report seeking to remove Christianity from schools because we're no longer a Christian country. Which is it? Is it this or is it this? Because what those two stories show is that, as you're all aware, we, we are moving into uh, what Mark Sayers describes as a gray space, a liminal space, a space in between two worlds. We were a Christian country. We were part of Christendom. And we still see ripples and echoes of that. But the reality is we are moving away from that. We are multicultural, multi-faith, no-faith country. Her Majesty the Queen described herself as the defender of the faith. King Charles describes himself as the defender of faith. There's a subtle difference there. Something's changing in the world that we live in and we can't quite put our finger on it properly. But on Sunday last week, I was invited down to preach at Windsor Presbyterian Church. Windsor and Orangefield have a, a friendship, a link, a connection. Their minister, Ivan Steen, is there 10 years, and they were having a special service. And Windsor is this wonderful melting pot of international communities and Northern Irish people coming together to love Jesus and worship Jesus. And I got to participate in this service, and it was incredible and disturbing and exciting all at the same time. I looked out 
There's three retired Presbyterian ministers sitting in this little congregation of about 120 people. Two of them are retired moderators of our Presbyterian church. Older, white, middle-class men who had given their life to serving the church and had done it really well. And on stage is a Persian lady called Nasim leading worship and singing, sometimes in English, sometimes in Farsi. On stage is a, a Persian guy called Meti, translating the service into Farsi. And I'm thinking to myself, something's shifting, something's changing when the people who used to have the power are sitting in the congregation and this new generation, this new type of people in Northern Ireland are leading us in worship. We live between two worlds. We live in between two worlds. But God, like he was back then in the book of Acts, seems to be today birthing something new. And we're just seeing the beginnings of it, the glimpses of it, but we're not quite sure all of what it means. We're, we're moving away from, from authority and the institution being at the center of everything Let me say that again. Moving authority away from the institution, being at the center of everything and placing authority into the hands of a new generation and a new type of ordinary people, a different type of leadership, a different way of leadership. God empowering not the big and the strong, but the small and the weak. Doing what he did in the book of Acts, doing what he did in the Reformation, doing what we have suspected he's been doing for a while with the priesthood of all believers and every member ministry. And the guy at the front doesn't get to call all the shots. Why should I? And as we move into the newness of what God is doing, you will be asked to do more. Not by me, but by God. His Spirit will equip you and empower you to do more than you were doing in the last season of your life, whatever that looked like. And I'm really excited by that, to see what happens. The country is changing. Church will inevitably change. But we don't need to be fearful of that. God's kingdom is coming. He promises he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Things will look different in this new season. But if we believe that Jesus is coming back, that God is building his church, that things are, are moving forward to the future that he has planned, we have more to be excited about than we have to lament. It was just hard for the Sanhedrin to see that and feel that in those moments as they watched these unschooled, ordinary men speaking with authority and God working through them with power. But daddy, there was an objection to the movement of what God was doing. There's an objection to the message that these unschooled, ordinary men were preaching. You read about it in verses 9 to 12. Now, there's a complexity to this. So if you've got a Bible with you, open it up, turn it on. Just keep your eye on it. It's on the screen, but it's small. You'll see it better in front of you. 
Peter and John perform a miracle, preach a sermon, and get arrested. It's not your average day for a PCI minister, I have to be honest. Who arrests Peter and John? The temple guards and the Sadducees. Not the whole Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, one part of the Sanhedrin. Why did they arrest them? They arrested them because they had a problem with their message. They were preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Do you remember I told you the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees? The Pharisees had no problem believing in the resurrection. They believed in the resurrection of the dead for God's faithful people. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So the Sadducees were absolutely offended by the message these guys were preaching. And so they arrested them, but when they stood trial before the whole Sanhedrin, the Sadducees knew that if they said, we've arrested these guys because they're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, well, the Pharisees would go, don't be daft, of course we believe in the resurrection, don't be ridiculous. So they didn't bring that charge against them. The charge they brought against them, you can read this, in what power and in what name did you heal this man? That's the accusation. They're originally arrested for preaching resurrection, but when they stand trial before the Sanhedrin, the question is, in what power, in what name did you heal this man? Because it's a spiritually aware culture. It's a pluralistic culture. And the cultural vibe was people would invoke the spirits of different false gods to achieve fertility or achieve healing or achieve good crops or achieve good weather, all sorts of things. In what power, in what name did you heal this man? But Peter cuts right to the chase. Look at verse nine. He says, are you asking about that? Or are you asking about this? Down home they would say, you call a spade a spade. Say what you mean. Are you asking about that? Or are you asking about this? Do you want to know how we performed an act of kindness to a man who was lame and couldn't walk? Or are you really asking? Are you really asking? about the resurrection of Jesus. Is that what you want to know about? Because that's the ball game. That's what it's all about. We saw you crucified Jesus. We saw him die on the cross. We saw his limp body taken down. We saw him led in a tomb and the stone rolled across the entrance. We saw this Jesus become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world doing something that nobody else in history could do, can do. And we saw God raise him from the dead. We saw him defeat sin. We saw him defeat death. We saw him defeat sickness. We saw God raise him from the dead. We ate with him. We touched him. 500 people saw him. You see, in our Christian faith, and many of you know this, but, but I, I want to say it. I want to say it so clearly as we come to this table and in this moment that we're in as a church and as a nation. Jesus, God in human form, came into this world, died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You are not perfect, but he died to take away your imperfections. Death for you will be eternal. He died on a cross so that you can have eternal life. 
Peter and John are testifying to the fact not only they believe that, but they saw that, they witnessed that. My question this morning is, do you believe? You haven't seen it. You weren't there. You have to trust God's word. You have to trust the Holy Spirit. You have to trust the testimony of other believers. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that three days later he rose from the dead? And that he wants to forgive you and he wants to give you eternal life. Do you believe that? Because what Peter says in verse 12, as he talks and articulates this and preaches this, he says, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which mankind can be saved. Your good life, your generosity, believing in other gods and other religions, doing your best, trying your best, being kind to your neighbor, all those things, none of them, none of them will save you. When you come to the end of your life, none of them will bring you forgiveness. None of them will bring you hope. None of them will bring you eternal life. Salvation Peter says, and his words are as true today as they were then. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. If he's wrong, if resurrection didn't happen, if when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, if resurrection didn't happen or if it's wrong, then genuinely we can close the church and go home. Genuinely. We can simply be a social club. We can meet and hang out and drink coffee and have fun together and play table tennis. But guys, resurrection is the ball game. Because if Jesus really did come into this world, die on the cross, and three days later rise to life again, then it is not simply enough to say that is personally true for you and for me. That has to be universally true. It is not enough for you to buy into the spirit of this age and say, do you know what? I believe this, but my friends, my family, my neighbors, my colleagues, they can believe whatever they want. If resurrection is real, then it is worthy of you giving your whole life to it. Not half your life, not 10%, your whole life to it. And it is worth you falling on your knees and praying to God that the people around you will know it as well. Because if they don't, if they come to the end of their life without knowing Jesus, then they are destined for a lost eternity. Resurrection is the ball game. It's either true or it's not true. And it's not enough that it's true for you. My question is, do you believe that it is universally true? The reason we run Alpha every year, twice a year, four times a year, is because as a church leadership, we are convinced that this is the only news, the best news the transforming news for people's lives. 
And we want to make, just create spaces and make it as easy as possible for you to, to have somewhere to invite your friends along to. That they may meet with Jesus, that they may have their lives transformed by his grace. And that they may know him as Lord and Savior. And it's not too late to invite them. We have a course that starts tonight online. We have one that starts on Tuesday. They're both taster sessions. If you miss this week, you can still come next week. Don't worry about that. But if you believe resurrection is true, it's not enough to believe it's personally true. You have to believe it's universally true. That it is salvation is found in no one else. I want to encourage you to issue that invitation to the people in your life, to Alpha. It is not too late. It is not too late. Finally, objection number three. The but daddy number three. The objection to the miracle. See, it's interesting this one because I don't actually think there is in the text an objection to the miracle. There's certainly questions around it, but nobody objects. The, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, the, their, the Sadducees' objection is to the resurrection teaching about Jesus. I, I think the reality is this morning, most people here don't object to the resurrection of Jesus. We're, we're quite comfortable with that. I think we have to be more convicted by it, but we certainly believe it. The Sadducees' objection was to the resurrection teaching. Most of us are comfortable with that. None of them in the text were objecting to the fact the guy was healed. He was standing there amongst them. They couldn't. And yet for many of us, that's the stumbling block, isn't it? The question about God healing today, that is the stumbling block. It's interesting that the word that's used is the word sozo, to be saved, which also means to be delivered, which also means to be healed. Because I think in the minds of these guys that the freedom of life that Jesus comes to bring is all-consuming. It works itself out in our lives in different ways at different times, but, but salvation and forgiveness and deliverance are all part of what Jesus comes to do. Not this or this or this, but all of it. When you read through Luke's gospel, you know that Luke's gospel is part one and then Luke part two he calls Acts, written by the same author. In Luke's gospel, what we see throughout the book is that proclamation and power go hand in hand. That the message of repent for the kingdom is come and miracles, the message and miracles go hand in hand. Salvation and signs and wonders go hand in hand. There's not really a distinguishing between them. They, they, they just happen. This is how the kingdom comes. This is how the gospel goes forward. What's interesting is when you move into the book of Acts, Jesus has died on the cross. He has been raised back to life. He has ascended into heaven he continues to be at the right hand of God the Father. He will continue to be at the right hand of God until he comes on that day to judge the living and the dead and to usher in his renewed kingdom. It's what we believe. It's orthodox Christianity. What's interesting, though, is Jesus ascends into heaven. His spirit comes 
and continues to do the things that Jesus was doing. When he was here physically, his spirit continues to do the things that Jesus was doing through his people. And as we read through the story of Acts, we're gonna see more people becoming Christians and repenting. We're gonna see more people healed. We're gonna see more people delivered. More people encountering the fullness and the freedom of life that Jesus comes to give. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These disciples had more than a theological belief that this could happen. This is the point. These disciples had done the theology. They they, they believed this could happen, but there was more than that. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. So they leave the Sanhedrin. They're freed because really they haven't done anything actually wrong. They go back to their home group. Home groups are important. They go back to their home group. And as a home group, they start to pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats. They know they're up against opposition. They know the world is hostile to the message of Jesus. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Proclamation. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. These guys had a theological conviction that Jesus was still doing the same stuff as he was doing when he walked on earth. But more than that, they had a hunger and an expectation and they said, God, here I am, use me. People need to hear about Jesus and the way it seems to happen is proclamation and power, salvation and signs and wonders, message and miracles. So don't just put words in my mouth, Jesus. Work through me with power so that your kingdom may come in the lives of the people I love. That I will see my colleagues and my friends come to faith in Jesus Christ. For some of us here today, there's a theological question that you're not quite sure you get this or you're not convinced. I'm gonna say that's okay. Keep doing the deep heart work of theology. Don't, do, don't sell it off with a cheap butt daddy. A cynical objection. Keep doing the deep theology. Get into the word. Open your heart. Say, God, show, show me, show me, show me. But if you read these words and you believe that God still moves today in power, that signs and wonders are still possible, why on earth as a church are we not praying this prayer? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants here in Orangefield to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. If you have a theological objection or question, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay is if you have a theological conviction that this is true but you haven't or you're scared to pray that prayer. We live in a world 
that is so far from accepting Jesus and yet so hungry for spiritual truth. Jesus still moves today, proclamation and power, talking about Jesus and ministering in his name, seeing people's lives changed. My invitation to you this week is to, who are you going to invite to an off, of course? But secondly, when you step into the 24-7 prayer space this week, when you carve out that one hour in the week to spend alone with God in this place, can we go back a slide, Andrew, to that verse? Will you pray this prayer? Will you pray this prayer? Let me pray. Holy Spirit, come and just in the silence speak to us as a people as we respond to these words. Meet with us in our questions about theology and lead us into truth. But Father, for, for, for those of us who the fear of man is bigger in our lives than the fear of God, Forgive us and fill us with your spirit and help us to live true to the convictions that we see in scripture that you have planted within us. Give us the courage to speak to our friends with both gentleness and boldness about your son, Jesus Christ. And help us to be open to your spirit, prompting us to pray prayers that are bigger than ourselves. Our heart is to see the people in our family and the people in this city, and the people in this nation, not simply watch a church service on TV because it's a national event, but to become the church as they encounter your son, Jesus Christ, in all his beauty and fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.